Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Have you ever wondered if there was one overarching theme to the story of the Bible? Well, today we begin a two-week series entitled The Story of the Bible. Dr. John Newfell will help us recognize this storyline, one which is so necessary to understand. So let's join Dr. Newfell today for this study. I wonder if you've ever noticed that the most effective ways of making disciples, for good or for bad, is through a story. Here are some examples. When Adolf Hitler wanted to make disciples for his evil ideology, he told a story. In his tale, he borrowed the idea of evolution that within the evolution of the species, it was the fittest who would survive. And thus he told a story of a Nordic, highly evolved race, a race called the Aryan race. The German people he taught were the Aryan race. For the Nazis, the story of the great struggle for the most highly developed race was to take their place as the master race. Now, the world has always responded to stories. Communism presents a story that of the relationship between classes of people and the production of goods. The engine of history is the great struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. But there are other stories of a smaller nature. Think of the stories that are told by motivational speakers that paint a picture of life in which you can really become all you are intended to be. Countless stories of people who embraced the speaker's principle and how their lives were changed and the transformation from failure to success. And then there are the politicians that promise that with their election, the historic greatness of their nation will be restored. A story is told of what their nation is and what destiny lies before it. Now, television thrives because of stories, whether in movies or in reality TV shows. All of this tells us that humanity is moved by stories. Even the theory of evolution is a story of the creation myth for the secular mind. I mean, I could go on and on. Stories move the human heart. We're not content to simply be taught a series of facts or truths, nor are we moved by duty. Human beings are profoundly shaped by stories. It should not surprise us then that the Bible is a story. I hope you heard me. I I didn't say the Bible presents us with a series of stories. See, unfortunately for many, they've never been told the story of the Bible. They've heard of David and Goliath and of Daniel and the lion's den, of Jonah and the fish and of Jesus walking on water. But for many, the Bible is simply a collection of stories. And this is so unfortunate. So many of us have reduced the Bible to a series of stories of various people from whom we can learn some important life lessons, but have not seen a grand narrative, the whole picture, which utterly transforms everything we've ever believed about the world. So for the next two weeks, I want to retell the story of the whole Bible. But before I do, there are two very important issues to address. The first has to do with the arrangement of the writings we find in the Bible. In order to understand the Bible's plot line, one must know into which period to place each writing and how what one is reading relates to the whole. I'll come right back to that important issue in just a moment. The second issue, one which we will also address, is to answer the important question of what the Bible is all about. And so, for instance, a great many books contain either in the inside cover or on the back of the book a paragraph or two telling the reader what he or she is about to read. If your Bible contained just such a sleeve, what would it say? 
Let me try to see if I can write one. Here's what I would write on the back cover of the Bible or someplace. The Bible, I would write, tells the story of an inexpressibly glorious God and his creation. The crown of God's creation is man, expressed as male and female. God created man to rule and reign over his creation on his behalf. Man rebelled against God and fell from God, sinking man into alienation and death. But God will never abandon his creation. From the very beginning, God was in Christ, or another way to put it is, God was in and through his chosen Messiah King, reconciling the world to himself. This plan of reconciliation reaches its zenith in the story of the cross, which demonstrates both the majesty of God and his compassion on man, his creation. Finally, the story ends with a consummation of all things. In the end, the reason for God's creation is fulfilled, and therefore the story of the Bible tells us what is ultimately important and what is the purpose of our creation. Now, of course, as is the case of any excellent story, and by the way, when I use the word story, I don't mean fiction. A story can be fiction, but it can also be nonfiction, entirely true. And the Bible is not just a story, it's a true story. But laying that aside, let me restate what I have said. As in the case of any excellent story, there are unexpected twists and surprises in the Bible storyline. There is a drama and at times places where we can't see how the storyline will work itself out. But if we're patient and allow ourselves to work our way through the Bible's plot line, we will arrive at an amazing place the place where all things are made right, a place where we find our eternal home, and finally, see just how magnificent is the God who stands at the center of the story. Now, that's the story. But there is, of course, so much of the story that we have not told. I've not mentioned any of the story's characters, nor the moments of suspense that capture our attention. And in order to get the storyline worked out, it's important to understand how to read the Bible so that we can follow the plot line carefully. See, although the Bible has sold far more copies than any book in human history and has had a far greater impact on the development of human culture than any other writing the human family possesses, yet still, in order to read it as story, some basic features are necessary before we begin to read. The first and most obvious feature is that the Bible is an ancient book. The Bible first began to be written probably just shortly after 1446 BC and was not completed until AD 95. It has taken longer to write the Bible than any other book that we have. Since generations passed in the writing of the Bible, we find that the Bible actually contains 66 separate writings, often called books. What's of crucial importance is to understand when the books were written and even more importantly, to know how to follow the storyline chronologically. If we don't know the sequence of the events as they happened, we won't understand the Bible's plot. Now, the sequence of events doesn't naturally follow the way in which the Bible is presented. In some places, the Bible is in chronological order, but in other places, it is surprising to find that the Bible is not in chronological order at all. And so, as an example, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which occur somewhere near the middle of the Old Testament, actually speak of a time which occurs close to the very end of the Old Testament story. And furthermore, 
the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, the last three books of the Old Testament, that is, the things that those three prophets spoke of, are directly related to the historical events that are recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you don't know that you should be reading what Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi said while keeping your Bible open to Ezra and Nehemiah, well, you won't understand the story. Now, does that sound complicated? Well, in a sense it is, but we can clear up a whole awful lot of confusion if we understand that the books found in our Bible are placed in categories, not in sequential order. The first five books are often called the law. The first of those five, Genesis, tells us the story of God's creation until the formation of God's chosen people, that is Israel. From then on, it tells us of the law that Israel was to live by. The next 12 books, from Joshua to Ezra, record the history of the people of God and how they fared in their relationship to the law. These are called the books of history. Then the next five books contain the poetry and wisdom that God gave to Israel. In many cases, it is helpful to know when the various documents were written. And then, from there to the end of the Old Testament, we have our final division of the Old Testament, often called the prophetic books. These books can further be broken down into two subcategories, the major prophets, that is, those books that are longer in length, and the minor prophets, those books that are shorter in length. Each prophet contains the writings of men who have been raised up by God to speak God's word to a definite historical context. And since these books are not in chronological order, it's important to understand to which historical situation they spoke into. Now, that simply means that anyone who wants to understand the Bible's storyline will need help, well, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, knowing where each piece fits. But with a little help, once directed to understand where each part of the story fits, an amazing story begins to unfold. And once we see it unfold, we will never see the Bible in the same way again, nor will we ever see the world or our individual lives in the same way again. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Many Christians seem confused about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. For some, the term old means outdated, kind of like an old car or your old computer or your old clothes. But the Bible never uses the term old and New Testaments. 
those designations came long after the Bible was written. In effect, the first 39 books of the Bible tell the story of God reconciling the world to himself before the coming of Christ. And then the last 27 books tells us the story now that Christ, the fulfillment of all things, has arrived. I have long believed that we would be much better served to refer to the two halves of the story as the First and Second Testament. The Second Testament doesn't cancel out the First Testament any more than you might think of any other book in which you would find Chapter 2 canceling out Chapter 1. Rather, what we would expect in Chapter 2 is the ongoing building of the story. That's exactly what we find in the Bible. And so in biblical terms, the Second Testament is the fulfillment or the bringing to fruition the longings of the First Testament. And just like what we described when we described the storyline of the Old Testament, we also need just a bit of guidance in understanding the storyline of the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament are often called the Gospels. They weren't the first thing written in the New Testament, but the part of the story they record does happen first. These four books tell the story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the vantage point of four different eyewitnesses. One can actually compare the four accounts and get a clear picture of the chronology of the three years of Christ's ministry. The book of Acts follows, and it records the history of the formation of the followers of Jesus into a church. From then on, we have a listing of 21 what are called epistles, or more simply, letters. The first 13 of these letters are written by Paul, and they're not arranged in order of writing, but roughly from the longest to the shortest. Then follow another eight letters written by various authors. Each letter is written to a local situation. Again, just like the Old Testament prophets, if we understand the sequence of the writing of these letters and something about who they are written to, the Bible storyline makes sense. The final book in the Bible is also a letter written to seven different churches. But this book, the book of Revelation, unlike all the others, brings the entire Bible to a climax. This book frequently, either by quote or by inference, draws on material from the entire Bible and ends by showing how from the very beginning, God had a purpose in his creation and is now drawing it to a conclusion that is the consummation of all things. The Bible ends with a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, having given a brief outline of the Bible, let's begin to tell its story in more detail. Today, we're going to discuss only the first two chapters of the Bible, that is Genesis 1 to 2. That's the introduction to the story. Almost everyone knows that the first lines of the Bible are these. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As simple as that line is, that line sets the stage for everything that's going to follow. The story of the earth and everything in this book is the story of a God who made all things and a God who owns all things. At the end of the story, Revelation 4.11 states, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's clear that since God created everything that exists, that all these things exist because he wills them to exist. God therefore also claims ownership of all that he has made. All things are accountable to him, for they owe to him their existence. If this fact were not known, we might not understand whether it's a large or a small thing to rebel against God. 
For instance, a population of a country might rebel against their government. I mean, after all, people can replace their government with a better one, and they may find that their government has acted inappropriately. But the doctrine of creation makes our relationship with God different than our relationship with all other things. Further point of notice is that the Creator God has created all things well. God is presented as a master creator who at the end of each successive stage of creation says that it's good, and who after he creates the man and the woman states most emphatically that it is very good. We're to understand from this that the world that once existed perfectly reflected that for which God intended it for. Whether it be the orderliness of the creation or its beauty, or whether we speak about the purpose for which it was made, all things are exactly as they should be. Nothing is amiss. Nothing needs to be fixed. All things are as God planned them to be. The apex of the creation story in Genesis is the story of the creation of man, or as Genesis 1.27 puts it, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Here in the account of the perfect and orderly creation, we find God creating man as male and female. This man is in God's image, meaning that what man is uniquely reflects the image of the God who made him. And with his unique place in the creation comes a mandate. The purpose for man's existence is that he, as male and female, should first be fruitful and fill the earth. Unlike the animal world that is called upon to fill their respective habitats, man is to inhabit everything, fill the whole earth. And secondly, man is called upon to subdue the earth and have dominion over the whole earth. You know, imagine you're assigned a garden plot somewhere. And so you make plans to plant carrots in one section and perhaps beans in another, and you might have flowers in mind in a given location. You begin to develop an idea of what your garden will not only produce, but how it will look. You fertilize and water it and make sure that it yields a healthy crop. So what are you doing? In fact, you're subduing your garden and exercising dominion over it. And for Adam and Eve, this was a progressive work to be exercised gradually incrementally over the entire earth. And because they're in the image of God, the kind of rulership they exercise over the whole creation will reflect the grandeur and the magnificence and splendor and majesty of the great creator God until it covers the whole earth. In a sense, even though the world was as it should be, yet at the same time, there was a task given by God to the human beings he had created in his image. Progressively, rule the earth in such a way that the glory of God is felt in every single area of this earth. See, Genesis 2 then is a closer and more relational look at the creation of the first human pair. The man and woman are placed into a garden, and some features of the physical geography of the land they occupy is given. So in my view, it's vain to try to identify the specific location of the Garden of Eden. The fall and the flood that we're going to talk about later and the possibility 
that the place names were simply reused in other places where the human race migrated makes it highly unlikely that we will ever be able to pinpoint the exact location of the Garden of Eden. But it did exist at one period of time. What is of great interest in chapter 2 is the unique relationship that was to have existed between the first man and the first woman. The man is created first, and the woman is created from his body, meaning, of course, that they share of the same flesh and that they are of the same essence. Furthermore, she is called a helper fit for him in that she shares his mandate to rule the earth alongside of him. And finally, the two are created to share intimacy. The idea of marriage and the lifelong union between a man and a woman finds its way into the human race, not after a long series of generations in a way to handle the development of culture, but marriage is the first of all human institutions. Marriage exists both for filling the earth and ruling it as image bearers of God. The book of Psalms, the poetry of Israel, often reflects upon the creation theme. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 8 says, You have set your glory in the heavens. And then it goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Indeed, that's the precious truth of Scripture. The heavens are portrayed as the creation of God's limitless imagination and creativity. They are an expression of His greatness, and they are a showcase of the God who rules all things. And so at the outset, we see the theme of the Bible. God is majestic, and we have a purpose. The story has begun. John, thanks for a great introduction to the series. I'm excited to hear what else you have to say. But I know you alluded to something at the beginning, talking about this being a story. So is it a true story or is it just a representation of truth? The Bible always makes the claim that the things it speaks of happened in genuine, real history in space and time. So as we go through the story, Ben, what we're going to talk about are some of the exact dates when these things happened and the exact places in which they happened. I mean, at times I might make reference to some of the archaeological finds that demonstrate some of the culture in which it happened. So the, the story of the Bible is not just that we're making the claim that it actually happened, but everything is verified by all the tools of genuine history. No, no, this story happened in space and time. What a great opportunity to know more about the story of our God. And you'll learn more tomorrow right here at Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Do you want to know the answers to some of the most commonly asked questions from our listeners? Well, this month, I'll be privileged to host a special Back to the Bible Canada Q&A video series with Dr. John Newfeld, where he'll respond to some of the most timely and critical questions of faith and life. You can watch this series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a new Back to the Bible Canada video program, remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel while you're there. One of our viewers wrote to say, I just subscribed. Thank you for sharing God's Word. 
The greatest calling in life is to present the truth of His Word. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.